Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're leading, you have to recognize uh, some of those systemic issues and make you know larger changes so that we can address even larger issues that are really plaguing our city. I think safety is one of the biggest issues that's plaguing our city today, and, and it's one that we need to, to get a handle on. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Alderman Sophia King, who was appointed Alderman in April 2016 by former Mayor Rahm Emanuel to replace retired Alderman Will Burns. Alderman King, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Fran, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Mayor Lori Lightfoot said recently, Alderman King is an interesting person. She meant it snidely. I don't. I think you are a truly interesting person, which is why you're here. Now, the two of you have disagreed on the mayor's decision to scrap a redevelopment agreement that included certain important protections for Mercy Hospital, which was sold this month to Insight. What was that disagreement about, and why were you so upset about her decision to scrap that agreement? So first of all, <laughs> my mother thinks I'm interesting, too, so thank you. I think in the same way that you might think I'm interesting, uh, she thinks I'm special, and I, I would hope that the mayor intended to bring that same sentiment here. The Mercy Hospital, Fran, I've been really fighting to make sure that we have equity in health care in our community, especially here in the Bronzeville uh, community where Mercy serves. I've been working on this for over a year. The redevelopment agreement gave protections to uh, the city, to the residents, to people who use uh, the hospital. It was set up to really protect the hospital and other hospitals that provide this type of care to the underserved for long term. And terminating that at the request of a billion-dollar company sends the wrong message to these protections that are set up in a number of different instances. And I disagreed strongly with that tactic to try and save uh, the hospital. And so I think that's where our, our disagreement really arrived at. And, and she chose to take a different approach, what, again, which you know that I disagree with. I, I felt that we should have stood the hospital up as a city, as a state, really vetted 
uh, a buyer. We chose to also go in the direction of a buyer that hadn't been vetted, meaning they showed no financials, they showed no plan of operation. And what does that say to my community, to constituents, black and brown people, that it just anybody can come in and run a hospital? I don't believe that to be the case. And as I said, I suggested that we st- stand this hospital up instead for a few months, that we really vet buyers, uh, that we go in and evaluate the hospital. The state had paid for an independent evaluation so that we could see what the true needs of the hospital are going forward. And those are things that I was suggesting to do before we move forward. And we had the power to do that. And we lost that power with when terminating this redevelopment grant. When you say stand hospital up, what do you mean? Sure. Did you want the city and state to run it for a while while you vetted yeah. this new buyer? <laughs> Yeah, so talking to consultants who are in this industry, it's very common practice to have a management company come in for different reasons. And so we could have had a management company run the hospital because unfortunately, Fran, it it had already been brought to its knees. It was essentially closed. They were down to maybe 10 uh, people in the hospital beds. They were on permanent bypass. They were sending people to other hospitals. So they were already essentially closed. So yes, I wanted a management company to come in so that we could independently evaluate where the hospital was. The sellers, Trinity Hospital, again, a billion-dollar company that marked, I, I think, $800 million net Q1 of 2021 in a pandemic, and they chose to close the hospital. That's a whole nother story. But they also asked to terminate this redevelopment agreement because they were on the hook for a number of covenants and responsibilities to the city and to the people for taking half a billion dollars in subsidy from the state, from the feds, from the city. And so we're just going to let them off the hook. So yes, I disagree with that method of trying to move forward. And my, not only mine, but a representative Robinson, a state senator, uh, Maddie Hunter, we all represent uh, this district. And our recommendation because we had been dealing with this situation for over a couple of years. The mayor's office just came in after our encouragement. I had been talking to Deputy Mayakar for over a year, and he wouldn't step in. He wouldn't come to the meetings that we had, which is telling because, as I said publicly, and don't mind repeating, he had said to Trinity that he had been approached by all these developers, that the land was you know, really valuable, which sent, I believe, the, the wrong message to them that this property could be on the sale sales block. But anyway, yes, I, a management company propping the hospital up would have been the best thing to do, would have been best for our community rather than handing it over to somebody who would not provide any due diligence, I thought was the best path forward. You have argued that only the city council can cancel a redevelopment agreement that only the city council approved. What do you intend sure. to do about that? And will you force a vote at the next council meeting? Yeah, redevelopment agreements are codified at the city council level for a reason. And the mayor's office chose to terminate this agreement. They used uh, a default clause that says that given all of the covenants that an entity has, in this case, Mercy Hospital via Trinity, there are covenants and protections and things that they must do. 
and that if they don't follow through with any of those, there's I guess there's a clause somewhere that that says that the city has the right and the mayor has the right to terminate or to designate a person to do. And that's, I think, the clause that they use to say that they had the rule or the pathway to do that. I've consulted with a number of attorneys. They say that that could be considered an anticipatory breach, meaning it was one that was planned. And so that there there are legal kind of repercussions for doing that. I think that's the case here. I think that they all knew that this was a path that they were going to take, that there is this anticipatory breach. Again, I, I think that's wrong. I think it sets a bad precedent because there are a number of redevelopment agreements, including one that they want to sign with the Michael Reese development with a number of large projects, whether it's the 77 or Lincoln Yards. They all have redevelopment agreements that have covenants in them that protect the city and the people around them. And if you just single-handedly terminate them. It just sends, and this is, hasn't been done in 50 years under any mayor. It really sends a bad uh, message. So can you do anything uh, about it? You can legally what might uh, you do, do something about it. Sue or try to force a vote on the council floor. What? Yeah, we're still talking about it and we're still researching what the avenues are for that, but it's certainly problematic. You, so we haven't heard the last of this. I don't think so, Brand. I think it's a really important issue that, you know, we need to make sure that the protections for the city and especially our most vulnerable residents are taken care of in the long haul. For instance, for the Michael Reese development, we have negotiated with the developer a 20% affordable housing. We've negotiated responsibilities towards having a diverse workforce, having diverse contractors, professional uh, services. We've, you know, negotiated a Bronzeville welcoming center for the community. There are all types of protections for selling that land. And then to say that you can single-handedly because a developer or a rich person asks you to terminate it, it sends the wrong message. Why have these agreements? And so I, I think it's important that we that we protect and continue to protect those things that were codified by the city council. This is not the only time you've clashed recently with Mayor Lightfoot. You went toe to toe with her on the council floor last month on the decision by two of your colleagues to use a parliamentary maneuver to delay city council approval of the ordinance you and Alderman David Moore have championed renaming Outer Lakeshore Drive in honor of Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, Chicago's first permanent non-Indigenous settler. The mayor refused to recognize you, even though you spoke first on that day, and you accused her of a trampling the rules and said, this is just inequity playing out right here in front of us. What happened on that day and why is it so important to you to forge ahead with this renaming? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say that I I don't believe I've clashed with the mayor. I think there's been you know, a, a real kind of push that I've felt, which is why I stay out of the media a lot, because I, I think those are made up circumstances to just sell papers. And so I wouldn't say that I've clashed with the mayor more than any of my other colleagues. What I will say 
is that on that particular day, as you were there and heard and witnessed, the rules of of order for the city council were not taken into consideration. And as I said, I felt that this was inequity playing out. We just saw not 10 minutes earlier, her zoning chair do the same thing that I did. And she deferred to him. It's insulting as a black woman to see that happening, but she deferred to him. And I expected that same deference when it came to me and and that wasn't done. And that's problematic. And she has and dead set against renaming Lakeshore Drive, which she says is an iconic roadway that is known all around the world. She fears it'll be costly and painstaking for homeowners and businesses, confusing to tourists, hurt marketing. She has offered a $40 million alternative that includes finishing New Savile Park, renaming the Riverwalk, and creating permanent exhibits to DeSable on the Riverwalk. What, what's wrong with that alternative? Again, I, I think it it really highlights the inequity in this city. And as a, again, as a black woman, and she's a black woman too, I expect her to understand that more than most. I can give you concrete examples of the same thing that was done, meaning we'll give you a lot of money or other things, but you can't have this particular item or thing. It was the same thing. I was landmarking the Johnson building, better known as the Ebony uh, Jet building. And uh, there were all types of barriers that were put in the way for that, that the administration did. I had just landmarked the Essex building right down the street, which has a similar sign on top and literally is a few doors down and had no problem doing that. It, you know, happened in a six-month period. Fast forward, the Ebony Jet building took almost a year and a half because they tried to take the Ebony Jet sign down. But the same kind of barriers were put up there saying, we won't be able to market the building and sell it. We won't be able to, it wasn't original to the building. All these barriers, we found out that the sign is original to the building, that they sold that building for way more than they thought that they ever would. So all of these things, are barriers are put into place. Ida B. Wells Drive, the same type of barriers. First, we were told the same thing as Jusabel, that it wasn't within our jurisdiction to rename. I had to show the mayor then that there was legislation from the state that gives us uh, the ability to do so. The same with Jusabel Drive. It was going to be too costly. We're going to have to change all these addresses. That This is an iconic street. There's always these subtle barriers to change and to equity uh, that kind of come up. And so to come up with $45 million to not name rename Outer Lakeshore Drive to DuSable Drive is it's insulting and it smacks of some of the same historical barriers that I've seen recently in my short stint as alderman, uh, just five years. And and to say that because you changed this name to uh, DuSable and an African or excuse me, a, a black uh, man who founded our great city, Haitian descent, is insulting. And I think as a black woman, you should understand that and know better. I think we will be seen as an even greater city. I think we'll be even more marketable in this day of black reckoning and really trying to understand our history and stand up to all of the racial barriers of the past, I think this would be a great time to say that Chicago is a diverse city and we celebrate diversity and we understand that it only makes us stronger. And oh, by the way, this was our founder who just happened to be Black. 
And you and Alderman Moore had originally talked about a special meeting, but you haven't done that. Why didn't you, and do you still have the votes to force this on June 23rd? Yeah, so we had the votes to do it on June 23rd, and we thought that would be the best way through. And how many forward. votes do you have? What's your head count? Yeah, I, I'm not at liberty to share that with you uh, right now, but we do have the votes and yeah, we had them then we have them going forward. And that's why there's all of these moves to try and deter our colleagues from their first inclination. Now, Mayor Lightfoot has not yet presented a plan to the city council to spend the $1.9 billion avalanche of federal stimulus funds on its way to Chicago. You are part of a, a small group of aldermen who are pushing for a $30 million guaranteed basic income pilot. You want to give 5,000 of Chicago's neediest families $500 a month no strings attached. What do you like about that idea? And what say you to somebody like Jason Irvin who says, wait a minute, reparations first? Yeah. So we are taking a step back and looking at that. I think reparations, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that reparations should be a part of this. I think reparations should also be uh, a part of a long-term conversation, but I certainly think uh, that it should be part of the rep the conversation that we're having about a guaranteed income. I think any time that you stabilize people in terms of their income, it just creates a very positive long-term uh, sustainability. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. And again, I don't think that they're uh, mutually exclusive. I think we can move forward and have reparations be a part of this, but we also need to fund, I think, reparations in a more, in a larger way and in a law and in a way that is more long-term and sustainable as well. So what form would you like to see reparations take? You were raised in Evanston, which is a pioneer in this area. What <laughs> yeah. form should it take in Chicago? I think those are conversations. I don't want to get out ahead of Alderwoman Coleman, who is leading that leading that effort along with her vice chair Vasquez. And but we've had a number of talks about things that we can do and that will be forthcoming. Last fall, Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown defended his decision to strip neighborhood police districts of four to six officers on every watch in every district to prevent a third round of looting downtown. And on that day, you were pretty incredulous about the number of officers that were yanked out of the fourth ward. Has that abated? How, are, how do you feel about the police manpower situation at this point? Yeah, no, I still feel that there are issues of equity. I would say that if there's anything that's a thread that runs through almost everything that we do, it's issues around equity. And if you look at the the number of officers by ward or even by district, you will see the inequity in where officers are placed. There were six six districts that were merged into three, I believe, in 2012. And um, there were two in an African-American district, two in a Latino district, and two in a white district. And the two that were in African-American district were in, involved the fourth ward in a very uh, major way. If you look at those districts now, first of all, when they merged, the the 
four districts, the two in the white and the two in the Latino had similar crime patterns, meaning they were all, you know, relatively similar. The two districts in the African-American community had very different crime patterns. One district had one of the best crime, well, not crimes, but the best uh, safety in the city in terms of uh, crime statistics. And, and the other one had, was, were, was, probably in terms of the crime pattern above the middle. And so those districts merge. But if you look now at the equity meaning of how officers are in those districts, it's only in the African-American merged districts where there's been a disproportional shift in in officers, meaning there's disproportionately less officers in those districts. That's an issue. That's a big problem. It's one that I've brought up continuously and that needs to be addressed. Certainly there has been attrition all across uh, the city, but when I say in a disproportional manner, taking that into consideration and that just needs to be addressed and that was highlighted during those times. And I'm not saying that downtown is not a special area. I represent parts of downtown and that's why, why I can, can see that disparity there. And that's because of my ward, which is a kind of a microcosm of the city. I've got some of the richest areas. I've got some of the poorest. I can see the difference in resources and how they're allocated more clearly because of that. And so that allocation of resources should be different. I think that the superintendent has shifted. I think he looking back, probably understands that they did not, that they overreacted to the violence. And now there's, there continues to be a lot of gun violence in the South side. And, and that's problematic. I think part of that is due to the inequity in terms of distribution of officers throughout the city. Is and, the Wentworth you know, district being shortchanged still? Excuse me? Is Wentworth being shortchanged, the Wentworth district? I Yes, I believe at our height, we had probably close to uh, 300 officers in District 21 and District 2, which 21 is a district that closed and merged. Now we have less than 300 in, the, in both combined. It's, it's something that I continue to bring up, and it's an issue. By comparison, if you look at the officers that are in the district that merged in the white community, in one of their districts, they've got 350-plus officers. So, yes, there continues to be issues of equity. I think it's obviously no one wants to lose those resources, and so I think it becomes an internal battle. But I think it's one that when you're leading, you have to recognize uh, some of those systemic issues and make larger changes so that we can address even larger issues that are really plaguing our city. I think safety is one of the biggest issues um, that's plaguing our city today, and it's one that we need to, to get a handle on. So how is David Brown doing, and what more can he do to stop the record number of children from being gunned down on the streets of Chicago? Yeah, I, I, it's a difficult uh, position that he's in. I can sympathize with that. But I do believe that really addressing some of the um, inequities and in the distribution of resources is, is a good way to do that. I also think that just like he 
has a very clear strategic plan for the, the downtown area that he should implement something similar in neighborhoods so that they can see officers on a daily basis. So there can be real community policing. It's hard to, to have true community policing when you've got a beat that is so large that, and you've only got two officers on a beat, it, they can't ride their bicycles around or walk the beat. And that's the type of inequity that we see where there's a number of officers on a beat in, in north side neighborhoods where they're walk the neighborhoods, get to know their constituents and have this true community uh, policing where you see them when there's not an issue so that when there is an issue, there's some familiarity that will mitigate a number of the issues that we see play out in a very problematic way. The mayor talks about focusing on the 15 most violent beats on the southwest and south and west sides. Is she not doing that or what's wrong with that strategy? Yeah, I think I think I can't speak to what yeah, she's doing outside of my district as well. I'm just that just hasn't been my focus. I obviously represent the fourth ward and have a, a lot of <laughs> issues there alone. But I would say that there is historical data that a lot of the gun violence is coming out of only a small handful of districts. And I understand that. But I think you can't take your eye off of districts that perhaps haven't seen the similar violence. But that's increasing as well. And so you have to have a more holistic plan. I like to say at one point, if you've got five kids and you've got one problematic kid and you put all of your resources into that one kid, you're going to end up with five problematic kids. And so you still have to share resources with communities that aren't seen as problematic too. Otherwise, those problems will rise. And I think that's what we're seeing play out uh, a lot here. I think she this mayor inherited a lot of those issues. I think, quite frankly, you know, that they started under our former mayor. And I am sympathetic that these are problems that were inherited. But I still think there are ways that we can mitigate and stop a lot of uh, the violence that we see. How would you say Mayor Lightfoot is doing at midterm and what her chances are of reelection? Yeah, I'm going to leave that to you guys, the reporters, <laughs> and to her constituents, which we share. I always like to, to let you know her staff know that we share constituents. And so we need to be on the same page in trying to move policy and move decisions forward for constituents that we share. She obviously represents the entire city. I represent the Fourth Ward. So sometimes there's tension with those decisions, but I believe we can work together to make sure that we do what's best uh, for the ward, for the city as a whole, and take this great city to another level. I want to let our listeners know why I think you're such an interesting person. You grew <laughs> up in Evanston. You spent a lot of time in the Mississippi Delta. Your mom got a chance to attend Northwestern, my alma mater. You forged mm -hmm. a connection to the Latin school. I believe you taught there. I did. One of the most prestigious and expensive private schools in Chicago. What lessons did you learn there? 
Uh, what I learned there is that young people have, no matter where you are, have some of the same issues. How they choose to mitigate them is different, and they call them different things, and they socialize them differently. But for instance, you have a, a child there who may have mental health issues or what have you, and they've got a psychologist, psychiatrist, they've got the school social worker, they've got all the resources there, they've got the after-school program, which provides co-curricular activities. And so it just, it just reaffirmed what I already know is that a child who may be born in a situation where they're more impoverished and they don't have those resources and may be raised by a single parent and put them in an environment where they've surrounded by every resource available, they will grow. And so I take, always take the best of what I've learned and try and apply it to areas where people don't have those same opportunities. And, so, and that led you to um, found Ariel Community Academy to provide the same quality of education for residents of North Kenwood, Oakland. You've got a master's in education and social policy from Northwestern that you mm -hmm. use to diversify classes at Latin and promote co-curricular education at CPS. You're a former small business owner and you founded Harriet's Daughters, a nonprofit to, devoted to increasing employment and wealth in the black community. And mm -hmm. you are the wife of Alan King, a house music disc jockey and Chicago attorney who was a close friend and basketball playing buddy of Barack Obama. So yes. with all of that, <laughs> wow. Lots of experience I, that you brought to the to the city council of Chicago. Yeah. What was so, the most valuable of those experiences that you brought to the table, do you think? I think it was what my friends who encouraged me to do this because I thought it was crazy. I politics was never in my trajectory, but they sat me down and all of those things that you just listed they said, all of that will help you lead our community to where it needs to be. I have a history in education. We need to make sure that our community is educated. You have a history in making sure that there's equity in terms of contracts and resources in the Black community. That's something that we need right now. You've got a history in small businesses. That's, you know, something that we need. And so that kind of securitist path that I've had and experience that I've had, I think is helpful in helping me to empathize with the least of those, but understanding what the most of those have and leverage that knowledge to to bring us all up at the same time and to add value uh, to our community and just to make it better. So I think they saw something in me that I didn't see. And, but I, I will say that I've been invigorated in this position that as hard as it is, I am still passionate about bringing equity and look forward to continuing to serve to do just that. And Mayor Life, it was right. You are a very interesting person. Thank you so much for joining us, Altman King. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, friend. And I hope your family as well in the sincerest uh, way. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>